0: All right, welcome to episode 14 of Researching Happy. My name is Matt Icedello, and this is the podcast all about the research world of happiness and well being. So today we're going to take a bit of a different tact. Um, It's something that I've been talking about wanting to do since the very beginning, which is to really go broader than, um, you know, the field of psychology. And uh, we've already done that a little bit in, in other fields, but today we're going to theology. And we're talking with Dr. Brendan Case from Harvard University and the Human Flourishing Program that they have there. So this is going to be new for some people I'm I'm I mean I'm always interested in feedback but this week I'm really really interested in feedback. Um let me hear what you think. I think Brendan um I mean we have a really really great conversation. Um I hope that people can see the link to happiness as we go along. You know, we really do talk a lot about theology but um I think Brendan brings up a really interesting point, which is that, you know, psychology and and for us, I guess, positive psychology is at its worst when it's naive to the rich discussions that have been had around, you know, what it means to live a good life that have been had, you know, across philosophy, but also theology in the last 2000 and more years. So I think often, you know, people are quarreling about things that that have actually long been discussed and long been settled in some ways. And uh, you know, I think for us to progress the the pace of the academic process, we should be we should know about that. So yeah, I'm, as always, I'm really really keen to get feedback on this one. Um, I've got a few more scheduled with this kind of topic in mind, but um, always open to more ideas around other fields that we think have um, uh, weigh in in some way on on happiness and and um, and well being. So you can support the show at Locals, there's a link below um, in the show notes. Support can start from $5 a month, that's, that's greatly appreciated, but uh, more than that, I guess, even the, the easy stuff, which is sharing, liking, rating the show, um, particularly this one, I think as we talk theology, you might have a person in, in mind who might really be interested in, in some of the topics that are discussed today. So please let me know what you think, share this episode around, and uh, thank you and enjoy. Okay, so uh, welcome back to researching happy. Um, we are we are uh, honoured, I guess, to have Dr. Brendan Case on on the show today. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Matt. Uh, I'm honoured by the invitation. Good to be with you. Yeah, look, I appreciate that. I'll, I've got a quick bio for you, just as a quick introduction, but I'll uh, I'll skip through this quickly and and we can get started. So, Brendan Case, ThD, uh, the first ThD we've had on the show, really the first time I've ever actually seen THD, to be honest with you, I didn't know that it was a concept, but uh, is the Associate Director of Research at the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. He works to both develop integrative research strategies that draw together explorations of human flourishing from across the social sciences and humanities, and to disseminate the program's work through external partnerships and public events. Dr. Case's work has also appeared in journals such as Modern Theology, Studies in Christian Ethics, Franciscan Studies, and Pro-Ecclesia. His works in progress include the long-term project to develop a theological account of love that brings fundamental Christian convictions into conversation with classic debates in moral philosophy and contemporary debates in the social and behavioral sciences. So welcome, Brendan. Thank you. Yeah. So it'd be great just to, just to kick off and just tell us about yourself. So how have you come to be in the role and, and the field that you're in?
1: Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, well, I'm an academic uh, like, like you and like many of your listeners, presumably, so uh, it's not as interesting a story as, as, uh, as it might be with some other guests. You know, it involves me sitting in, in rooms in various universities for <laughs> a long time, but I mean, essentially, I um, uh, uh, like a lot of people who have who are humanistically inclined in college, it kind of came down for me to, to uh, law school or Grad school of some sort, and I realized that I really only was interested in, in the law and constitutional law and teaching. And you know, I thought, well, if I just want to be a uh, university professor, might as well just um, not take on the debt, you know, and go into uh, <laughs> go into the in the humanities straight, you know. And uh, so, anyway, I was I was interested. I'm a I'm a Christian myself, you know, and I was 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 pretty involved um, in my faith, faith tradition uh, uh, from a young age, and and so I had interests. Um, in theology as a discipline, uh, that, that sort of drew me towards that that field of specialization, which is what I did a, a masters in, and doctorate in it at uh, Duke University, and um, then found my my way here to the Human Flourishing Program rel- relatively quickly. I did a postdoc at Baylor, and um, through a, a in hindsight, just incredibly serendipitous uh, uh, series of events. Uh, that, that unfolded as the, as the COVID pandemic was, was, you know, shutting everything down in the spring of 2020. And, you mm-hmm. know, things were, were becoming increasingly grim, especially for, for academics on the job market. Um, ended up, ended up getting this, this uh, being hired in this role as associate director for research uh, here at the human, human flourishing program at Harvard, uh, as you mentioned. Um, and, uh, and that was, a I mean, it's a dream come true in a lot of ways, but particularly I think, you know, as um Given the the uh, dominant trends in the in the academy, really across the academy towards specialization, you know, ever increasing specialization and, uh, in, in, uh, uh, you know, within knowing knowing more and more about less and less, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. in any given field, um, mm-hmm. it was a relief for me as a kind of inveterate um, generalist with interest in lots of areas. And, you know, I've always sort of been a reader in many, in many fields beyond my own uh, narrow area of specialization uh, to, to come into a role where there was a sort of strong expectation uh, that, that I in particular, but really all of us in the program uh, would work in a, in, a pretty, in a pretty Catholic way, kind of across a lot of disciplines and have, you know, be expected to cultivate interests in, in our colleagues' work and, and yeah. work in this very robustly interdisciplinary way.
0: And I guess the the nuance there is, by Catholic way, you mean like universal way,:
1: yeah, that's right, not, not yeah. Roman Catholic way yeah, a yeah, gotcha.
0: C, yeah. <laughs> gotcha just to make sure, yeah, cool sure, um, sure. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, not that I would have a problem with that, but um, but just so the listeners know what we're talking about. Right. Yeah, okay, great, so just so you were looking for a job whilst the job market was disappearing as COVID you know was happening yeah. and you landed the job in Harvard. that's pretty amazing that's that's incredible.
1: Yeah, it does feel um I mean like I said, ser- serendipitous is the word that comes to mind. Uh looking back it feels as though uh there must must have been some point to it.
0: Uh yeah, look I'm sure merit I'm sure merit played a, a pretty significant role there. So I'm what I'm trying to do with the show is to really broaden out I think I said it in my introduction episode, that was like about three months ago, that um One of the things I'm really interested in when it comes to happiness is this issue of scientism. So this idea that the scientific method kind of explains all or can explain all. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think any scientists actually think that's the case. But we often behave that way, um, particularly when it comes to sort of explaining these things into the the world. And so I think particularly when it comes to happiness, we're talking about virtues, we're talking about purpose, uh meaning in life you know these are big questions that obviously have been discussed for a long time before the scientific method even existed so i'm very very pleased to be talking uh, with you today as a would would you call yourself a theologian yeah yeah absolutely so i'm really interested in just i don't think that this would be a very very well understood um thing by by the audience i'm assuming so it would be great if we could just briefly scope out kind of what is theology and how does it differ from from psychological research?
1: Yeah, that's a large question.
0: Um, Sorry. <laughs> it's actually an area,
1: I mean, it's an ongoing area of, of research within our program is something that I'm centrally concerned with is trying to work out, um, trying to develop uh, more systematic, uh, more articulate approaches to integrating the various disciplines that are represented in our program, including yeah. uh, theology, um, and p- particularly across the, the humanities um social sciences boundary. Um, Yeah, and so, I mean, this is a, like any, as with any uh, large, you know, venerable uh, field of inquiry, there are, if you ask, you know, you ask five theologians to define theology, you get eight answers back, right? I mean, so (laughs) it's not as though, I, I I don't pretend to speak with any authority exactly about, you know, the state of the field or anything like that, but, I mean, broadly speaking, this is just etymologically speaking, um, Theology, in the really basic sense, is just talk about God. God talk, right? So, and um, that that, in one sense, is quite is quite a narrow focus. Theologians are just interested in understanding in understanding um, as as much as we can about um, about God, presuming that such a thing, presuming that, that that such a thing exists, right? Obviously, a contested idea today, um, but uh, uh, given given the kinds of claims that, that theologians, Christians, but you know, from lots of traditions, um, both East and West, or want to make about God, that very quickly um, expands our, our writ, so to speak, like the, the scope of our inquiry to, to include effectively everything, if you, if you mm-hmm. take it, for instance, that, uh, that uh, everything is either, is either God or is, is brought into being out of nothing, in every instant of its of its existence by god you know uh and is, and is sort of destined in some sense to 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 return to god as its ultimate end then properly speaking everything falls within the scope of, of theological yeah. theory and so so um so and so in another sense it's it's in a way the most capacious uh uh field possible um and th- you know theologians in the in the middle ages kind of pique themselves um as as Being practitioners of the queen of the sciences that was sort of theology self-understanding it's like as as the kind of master discipline that integrated all of the other disciplines um you know practitioners of other disciplines today are are obviously less than less than keen on that self-designation which is fine i mean i think that the the demotion is in many respects well well deserved um but um yeah so uh I mean, there's lots of different. There's lots of ways of contrasting what theologians do with what psychologists do. Uh, there's also lots of interesting areas of overlap. I think, which is why why dialogue is is possible and fruitful. Um, I mean, you might think, and at one level, in terms of um, in terms of methods, um, right? So, uh, psychology, at least when it um, is being reflective, which as you 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 indicated often this is not not always the case but psychologists at least tend to, to try to to be uh, empirically minded at least to a great mm-hmm. degree right to, to, to describe the world as it is you know and and uh, to bracket questions uh, about sort of normative commitments of various kinds you know so um, discussing here the world as it is not as it ought to be necessarily the- theologians uh, take a very keen interest in in those in those kinds of normative uh, commitments that that are screened out by the sort of empirical focus of, um, of of the sciences in general, right? So that's so. At one level, there's a kind of there's a kind of complementarity. You know, uh, the psychologist can tell you the way the world actually is. Theologians um, have views, at least, about uh, the way the world ought to be. Um, mm. uh, so the, that's, that's yeah. Sorry, kind of just the, to
0: jump in, just the normative. I I hear a lot. I, you know, sort of um, theology is an, an emerging interest for me. I hear the term normative very often i think i know what it means but i uh, but i might just quickly get you to just define that
1: um yeah basically it's, it's a uh uh i'm just gesturing towards the is ought distinction basically yeah. so that on the one hand there are a set of claims about the way the world is on the other hand nor- normative here meaning related to norms you know uh, rules um right so um uh so most of us have some carry on some version of this distinction intuitively, you know, that the, the world in many ways is not the way we'd like it to be both, both for ourselves existentially, and then also, you, you know, in, in, in a in larger sort of systemic senses. And, and so um, theology is not unique. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there are a lot, lots, lots of disciplines. I mean, the, the, the closest analog really, um, in, in in disciplinary terms to to theology um, has always been philosophy. Mm-hmm. And distinguishing theology and philosophy in a way is one of the key tasks, is always one of the key tasks for theologians in particular. Uh, um, uh, theology, I mean, one way of thinking about it, I guess, is that um, theology is sort of philosophy plus. <laughs> in a way. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> theologians are interested in all the things that philosophers are interested yep. in, uh, um, employ a lot of the same texts and, and, and conceptual tools. Um, but, but, but sort of overlay the, you know, philosophy in a way is, um, is, uh, it's a kind of, a, it's, it's, it's a more ascetic discipline, right? So you're, you're trying to work out what you can know about this or that, uh, domain, including God, for instance, lots of philosophers are interested in God as well. Um, just from, from what you can see in the world and from, from what you can, what, what you can be reasonably confident of knowing. Mm-hmm. just by being a rational creature right that sort of thing yeah. right so yeah. so so and and theology of course adds to that um a commitment again lots of debate about what this means but a commitment in some sense to taking very seriously this this long um mostly textual tradition right which sort yeah. of is centered on the the christian bible the old and new testaments and it's you know now 2000 year plus reception mm-hmm. um, Across a absolutely vast, you know, uh, array of of um, of traditions in terms of time and space, um, and uh, it's a body of, of literature and, and, and a set of debates really about how to understand God, how to understand the human person, how to understand the world, you know, and our place in it, um, which is um, like with the history of philosophy, um, philosophy is like theology in this way as well. You know, but it doesn't make it doesn't make progress in the way that that the sciences do. Um, and the way that it's perfectly, it's perfectly conceivable that uh, a competent physicist today would might never have read Isaac Newton, you know, yep. or even yep. Einstein, right? Yep. Um, it's not really, it's not. I mean, there's there's some analytic philosophers who try to who try to uh, uh, act as though this were true, but you know, I think most most philosophers, like most theologians, recognize that you can't be a competent philosopher without having some pretty deep engagement with Aristotle, yeah. and you yeah. can't you can't be a competent theologian without having some deep engagement with uh, it, with Aristotle and also with the text of scripture and with its yeah. long perception, right? So, um, and that's a corpus. It's a it's a body of literature that's so immeasurably vast that, you know, no one person could could hope to have expert, anything like expertise in all of it. So it's a collective enterprise for that reason.
0: Yeah, great. And I guess just as a, a really concrete example of that, uh, someone that I'm ho- um, scheduling, we've had to reschedule a few times is um, Professor Jennifer Frey. Mm-hmm. And 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 um, I mean, she seems like she's got this incredible body of work. But what I what I why I was so interested to have her on. She wrote some work. She wrote something about um, Thomas Aquinas and happiness. Mm-hmm. And why when I kind of was approaching her, I said like, you know, positive psychology it it basically always mentions Aristotle, and then stops. I don't mm-hmm. think any of those people well, like the large majority haven't met haven't read Aristotle. I'm in this camp. You know, I'm guilty. I've mm-hmm. mentioned yeah, Aristotle's definitions of Eudaimonia versus Hedonia or whatever. I've never read it. I've mentioned it and it then have never referenced anything else that happened since. Uh-huh. And this yeah, idea yeah. of, um, you know, I'm really interested in this conversation with Jennifer then around, you know, what did Aquinas have as the person in my, you know, you know um, layman's characteriz- characterization of the person who, who brought together Aristotle and Christian, you know, theology. Mm-hmm. Um, what did he gain by the theology on top of on top of the aristotle but um so in terms of methods um just just briefly like i'm I almost wondered you know i'm guessing you as a team you're a very multidisciplinary team you're sitting in an in an office this may or may not happen i'm just imagining you sit in an office and you think here's this research question and then the theologian stands up and says we should answer it this way and then the psychologist says no we should do it this way like how how do we how does that play out
1: yeah that's a great question it really depends on on the, I would say it varies a lot depending on the, the kind of question that's in play. Okay. you know, so, okay. um, so the, the disciplines work together, um, at many stages of the various projects that we're engaged in, um, but they work together differently in different stages, I would say. So, so quite a lot of what we do is measure development actually. Um, so develop oh, yeah. new, new psychometric, you know, self-report survey measures of different, of different, um, psychological constructs, traits, we're particularly interested in virtues, which is a, mm-hmm. a quite a neglected topic, to be honest, uh, uh, within the, the literature. And so, you know, we start typically our work begins uh, as we as we uh, approach the idea of, of developing a new measure, say, of, of some type of interpersonal love or of hope, say, as a virtue um, by uh, um, getting around a table and um, spending time, really a lot of time. I mean, this typically goes on for months. Uh, working through with the, the humanists really leading the conversation in mm-hmm. um, sort of classic discussions of this of this um, concept from the history yeah. of philosophy and theology and so and so we you know very often go back to Aristotle Aquinas plays a tends to play a starring role um, we have several we have a couple of philosophers in our program who are experts in the thought of in Kierkegaard who's a, a great uh, 19th century Danish philosopher um, and yeah so we take we take really seriously the idea that um, um, we still have we here meaning you, you know humanity collectively but academics in particular have a lot to learn from these figures you know there's and there's a tendency i think um an unfortunate tendency in, in some pockets of the social sciences and and some some parts of analytic philosophy as well to sort to dis- disparage um anything not written by by a practicing scientist as sort of folk psychology you know mm-hmm. um uh and uh and i do think that there's a place in, for the analytical category of folk psychology in reference to a lot of, of popular beliefs about the way our minds work, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, but if, that, if that category has any purchase, it has absolutely nothing to do with, with what Aristotle wrote <laughs> you know, or what Thomas Aquinas wrote or Shakespeare, you know. I mean, the, yeah. these people are still being read uh, in, the, in the sort of careful devotional, you know, way they, they are by so many smart people because they, they speak to something really essential, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, uh, the, the stuff that, there's plenty of, plenty of folk psychology was being done when Aristotle was alive, but you know, about, about 90%, interestingly, of the, um, tragically, of the books written in the, in the ancient world have not survived, have not come down to us. Um, mostly, that, that's not through them being like heaped on a pyre and burned. It's just because people lost interest in them and didn't copy them. Mm-hmm. This was a period where you had to actually physically hand-copy books for them to survive. So we can be reasonably confident that the 10% that's made it down to us you know, particularly the really, really elite, like the one, the 0.1% of the of that 10%. You know, the the non-specialists would know about that yeah. stuff is worth taking very seriously. You know, so that's really where we start. So at the front end, you know, the our our, our work um, in measure development say is often really led by humanists, um, uh, sort of trying trying to to lay out. Okay, so conceptually, how might we understand different dimensions, say mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Here are some intuitive hypotheses, at least, you know, about dim- different dimensions, say, of love. Um, so our, our our work on love, in particular, which is which is, you know, I mean, as you mentioned, very salient for me, and also is occupying a lot of time in our program, um, has has been driven really from the start by the hypothesis that um, that there are sort of uh, uh, essentially two two latent constructs uh, bound up uh, together within within. Uh, 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 ordinary language use of 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 love so on the one hand there's a i mean the 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 two dimensions that we 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 distinguish between are um we call them unitive and contributory love um so essentially uh both of them consistent as 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 aquinas says the desire for the good of the other um to will willing the good of the other that is that is um love but um but you can do that in 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 two very just you know quite distinct ways so Mm -hmm. Um, on the one hand, you can desire a kind of communion with the other, like sort of being with the other, you know, and there's lots of different ways of desiring that, you know, there's a kind of unit of love that's appropriate to say, um, an ice cream cone, <laughs> right, <laughs> A kind of unit of love that's appropriate to a friend or to a spouse or, you know, your children. And then also, there's, there's this, there's this other, there's this other um disposition though which is which is consistent with unit of love it goes together with it but it's not the same which is the desire to contribute to the good of the other Mm. desire to ensure that the other you know um flourishes according to its kind in, in in appropriate ways um irrespective of of how they sort of that that feeds directly into your own subjective well-being you know say or or advances your agenda you know and so and that's a distinction that came right off the page from aquinas for us you know and um has been very generative in, in thinking. I mean, we we then do go on to do the the more usual things, you know, cognitive testing and 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 uh, um, factor analysis and that sort of, that sort of stuff yeah. with with items that we develop. But um, but then you know we do think that it's um I mean on the other on the other hand you, you know there's a the danger the constant danger that humanists face is um is tricking themselves into into thinking tricking themselves into thinking that you know, just because they've read some books that they're like really psychologists or sociologists, you know, and, and they end up doing kind of armchair sociology or armchair psychology. And so, um, by the same token, you know, I mean, I think that there's, um, when we, when we, um, the, our, the humans within the program, when we write about, um, particularly about, um, questions that touch on ethics or sort of human nature, those sorts of things. I mean, you know, we, we, um, I mean, we're not unique in this binding against non-humanists today, but I do think that we, we make an unusual effort to be, um, disciplined empirically in the claims that we make, you know? Mm -hmm. and, And, um, uh, so yeah, so there's two, it's very much a two way street, you know, in terms of the, the, the kinds of exchange that, that we, um, that we, we engage in, um, in the, in the program's work. And then on the other side, the other thing I'll just mention is at the end, you know, once we have data, say we it a, we it mm-hmm. a measure, you know, ideally we have, you know, now say, uh, uh, we, have we've, we've, we've collected data on at least, at least three time points is sort of what we try to do. Right. So this takes a long time as well. And now we're writing, you know, our outcome wide study or whatever, uh, humanists are involved as well in the and dra- drafting, um, and actually, analyzing the results, uh, drafting the paper that goes on to be published so that we, you know, I mean, we typically don't venture too far outside the introduction and discussion sections say, of these papers, but, you know, trying to really enrich the, the interpretation of the results, uh, uh, helping, trying to help the, the, um, the, um, social scientists, you know, in our group, um, widen their zoom a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with a little more historical texture, you know, maybe maybe introduce some di- distinctions that might not have occurred to them, you know. So, anyway, I mean, we view it very much as a as a um a case of complementary skill sets, complementary interests, you know, which are mutually enriching um ideally um
0: yeah, yeah. I I, absol- I remember like being even at school when you have to choose your, you know, when you're starting to get into senior school and choosing your, co- you know, what classes you're going to take and at university, the same thing. I, I just remember this feeling of, um, you know, what's the best field that these are competing things like mm-hmm. no, chemistry is the highest thing or physics oh. or like I, India, I just yeah. so clearly yeah. remember that. And I wish someone had shook me at that time and said, it's actually, an- <laughs> that's, you know, cause I think you're sort of, a- you're tying your identity to it or something like I'm going to be, whatever the smartest one i'm going to be part of the best one um i wish someone had sort of almost like shaken me at that time say like it's actually it's an ecosystem and that these things all contribute Mm. um usefully um yeah i just feel like that messaging is completely missing in the early days of of study to be honest but um Mm. why i'm so excited to see that the work that happens in in your team is that you know when we're talking about well-being I just want to make this very concrete, I guess, for listeners of why are we talking theology and, and sort of happiness. It's like if we're thinking of well-being as this, the first step of being this idea of maybe the generative good, so what is good for someone, it, it doesn't take very many steps to then, to then, I guess, understand, you know, what is good for someone? Or who can give me that answer? I guess theology or phil- philosophy is then saying, well, here is this body of work of, theologians, uh, of, of philosophers who have considered this question um theologians obviously have you know very similar idea but then if we're looking at like what can what can psychologists tell us it's really about attaching it i guess to a to an outcome like we have like life satisfaction of what are the biggest contributors to life satisfaction that comes with a presupposition that life satisfaction is is the good that we should be chasing Mm -hmm. and so i guess that's that's almost the that presupposition is the thing that i that i could see has been almost not not miscommunicated or misunderstood but I'm not trying to be unfair, but almost like uh, overlooked in a way by most of not the field, I don't think, but the way that the field has been interpreted. It's the presupposition, and I wonder whether that's something that is is a part of the dialogue within your team.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much. I was actually I just earlier today was thinking a lot about life satisfaction as part of the the paper that we're working on um, collaboratively. You know, and it's a. I mean, just to take that as 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 an illustration. Um, there are good reasons that so much energy has been invested in in trying to measure life satisfaction. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in a way, just there, I think there's some path dependence involved here in a way that, you know, the more people measure it, the more incentive there is to measure it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I, the OECD's gotten on board, right? And, you know, the UK is pushing it in a big way. So, so, that's, so, so there's some of that, but I do think it is, if you're going to use, I mean, for my money, it probably is the best single item measure. Mm-hmm. Flourishing, mm-hmm. you know, if you just could, if you can only ask someone one question, the advantage, of course, of life satisfaction, and this is a point that that Ed Diener, you know, made about it from the beginning, is that um, it really leaves uh, it leaves wide open the question of what the respondent will factor in, you yeah. know, so um, so they can anything anything that matters to you, you know, you can bundle in and you can weight them in various ways. That's the theory, at least, right? The theory is, and and this is a bit naive in the way it's presented, you know, as someone who's responding is going to sit back and, you know, like spends spend a long time writing down all the things that matter in their life and assigning weights to them, you know, and <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, the reason if if that really if that really were how the exercise went, you know, in terms of how people respond to sure. life satisfaction, sure. it would be a it would be a fantastic or probably a perfect measure of of flourishing. Of course, no one does that actually, right? And so it ends up being a pretty rough. Uh, a proxy, mm-hmm. very rough proxy mm-hmm. for overall flourishing, you know, cause it is just empirically there's lots of evidence that it's, it's people's responses are, are not determined, but are weighted in various ways by like how hot the room is, you know, and sure, like sure. The last conversation they had. And, you know, I mean, lots of totally irrelevant stuff. Extroverts are just more likely to be satisfied with their lives. Right. We all, we know all of these things. So yeah. So our, I mean, our view, the, the kind of theory about flourishing that really drives our, our program, um. Our programs work is is um, a very self-consciously Aristotelian alternative to the fixation on on life satisfaction or or you know the uh, any any um, really any single construct approach to to assessing flourishing. However, you know, I mean, however you want to you want to frame that. Um, uh, so you know, we have a. Um, we have uh, our, our program director, Tyler Vanderbilt, who's a an, ep- an epidemiologist and biostatistician. He developed in two thousand and seventeen a twelve-item a yep. uh, sort of short measure of flourishing, um, uh, which is divided into ten into into um, five domains, with a kind of half optional six domain uh, that that uh, consists of material well-being, um, which. I'll, I'll I'll come back I guess in a second to why it doesn't doesn't really count as a full one but but what, the first of them is um, subjective well-being so happiness and life and life satisfaction which matters a lot I mean there's no question pretty much everybody you um, mm-hmm. go around the world you know wants positively balanced experiences they want a life that seems choice worthy of them in some way you know um, but we think you also have to assess if you want a really full or understanding of, of a life that goes well you know you also need to think about things like um, Character and virtue. You need to think about the extent to which someone's life is meaningful. You know, filled with purpose. You need to think about mm-hmm. their their relationships. You need to think about their health, physical and mental health, which is am- amazingly left off <laughs> of tons and tons of of research in positive psychology. You know, it's just totally bracketed. Yeah. Um, so anyway, in our, our view, and this is again, I, as I said, very self-consciously an Aristotelian view, um, and in a different way. I mean, it, honestly, I think even it's even it's even. Um, it's even more, in a way, a, a sort of New Testament uh, view, uh, in, in, in my view, is that um, uh, a um, a life that is genuinely flourishing is one in which all aspects of your life are going well. Um, uh, so the idea that you could just home in on, on some narrow slice of the human mm-hmm. experience uh, and take that as a kind of stand-in for flourishing as a whole is, um, yeah, in my view, I guess, it's just naive. Um, it's not... There are certain contexts in which that kind of reductive exercise is is the least bad option you know or in yeah. which it's destructive yeah. in various ways but from a standpoint of theory you know the um this is a this is this is i mean the interesting thing is this is an argument that has been hashed out a bunch of times in the history of of philosophy you know so in a way it goes back to the i would say aristotle's debates with on the one hand the 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 the, the so-called hedonists you know the epicureans and then on the other hand the 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 stoics who said that the only thing that matters is character you know that it doesn't matter if you're being tortured and if your children are killed in front of you or whatever you know as long as you're a virtuous person then you're perfectly happy and you know there are there are good reasons most of them intuitive uh to to reject both of those positions something like the aristotelian position um it's probably the best one on philosophical grounds but this is something which you know psychologists unfortunately uh who are sort of innocent of that History are doomed to repeat it. Basically, you know, yeah, and yeah. Sort of uh, uh, adopting one or another, yeah, you know, sort of limited perspective that's been successfully criticized actually a bunch of times in the last two thousand years. You yeah, know. It's, th-
0: and that—that's actually the heart of the matter, I guess, isn't it? Is that that idea of um, you, you said it perfectly? That idea that in um, naive of the work that's been done in the past, and you're basically doomed to, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Right. That is the feeling that I get when I hear. Um, friends who are not theologians but theologically inclined of just like it's really not new what's coming out of psychology yeah um i you know maybe that's a a, an overstated idea but it is definitely the sentiment that i often get it's like actually this this has been this has been had this conversation
1: yeah yeah and i mean you know i think to to a certain extent that's um that's becoming truer i think happily in the last decade maybe you know because there was a period uh maybe i mean re- relatively short period maybe in the history of the discipline where you know especially social psychology was just consumed by uh by kind of faddish like counterintuitive findings you know okay so they okay. had to be you know it was like all of these ex- all of these experiments about priming you know and and you know there's the i can't remember the author but there's a there's a famous one uh, uh which supposedly showed that you know college students who spent time looking at a casting of rodin's thinker were more we're like more likely to become to to self-describe as atheists <laughs> <laughs> after that, you know those kinds of i mean lots of you know that the um people who were primed with words associated associated with the elderly would walk slower you know after the, lots not, not not all of them are you know about about like mind control you know but yeah. anyway and these these um it turns out you know, the, when the when the, the the replication crisis sort of broke in the open in 2015 yep. or so, an awful lot of these findings failed to replicate. You know, when when the, the I can't remember the name, of the Center for um, Open Science, right? Started trying to replicate a lot of these studies, in, in starting in 2015, and you know, 30% maybe. Lo and behold, yeah. Those would you know, and it, and I do think this is a case where again, um, if the researchers conducting the experiment experiment had been had been ballasted a bit more by a, 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 a richer conception of human nature, you know, that mm-hmm. was not, cause I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of model, the implicit model of what a human being is like, that's, that's at play in, these, in, in, in the most extreme of these priming studies is, of, is it's almost totally behaviorist, you know? I mean, in the sense that like, we're basically just at the mercy of all of these really subtle external forces. We have no idea what's actually yeah. determining, you know, our, our beliefs or judgments moment to moment. Um, and, you know, it's not that you can't find anybody necessarily in the history of, of philosophy or theology who's taken a view like that, but but almost no one has for good reasons. I think that this is just a pretty implausible model of... And frankly, in most other social science, social scientific disciplines as well, that's just not the dominant model in political science, say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, uh, uh, not the dominant model of, of human, human nature. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that it's a, you know... You don't have to get this. You can get this from lots of places, you know. And, and to some extent, I think thoughtful psychologists have have thought their way to these sure. more robust conceptions of human nature without having to, be, you know, you don't have to get a Ph.D. in philosophy to to do this. But but um, you do need to. I think everyone needs to recognize that that you are, in fact, presupposing some kind of theory of human nature.
0: Exactly. Exactly. In
1: in, in the empirical work you do and. To the extent that that's a that that's a thin or inadequate model um the results that you produce are going to be implausible you know or you're going to be it's the thing is i think in many cases uh there's a a good case there's a a very interesting book about this 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 whole problem um published a couple of years ago by the journalist jesse single um it's called um what's it called um sorry i should have had it i should have it on my desk i suppose um It'll come to me as soon as I log off. Yeah. I'll, I'll look it up in a second. No, but yes. um, the point is, so single, single, he, he makes the point that, um, you know, it's not that, um, I mean, these studies, they were they were well designed, many of them, in the sense that they genuinely did pass the, the relevant p-value cutoff or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. they had p-values of 0.04 or whatever. So like, uh, they're well designed. It's, it's not as though, people weren't necessarily faking the results. You know, it's just that in this case, when the when the result is as implausible as like looking at the F- Rodan's thinker turning people into atheists like shouldn't mm-hmm. the p-value cutoff have been set way lower yeah yeah, that,
0: yeah, like, yeah 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 are you. we
1: really are we really willing to accept like a 1 in 20 chance that yeah and it's a funny and when... it's
0: <laughs> yeah and it's that's that's almost like i i'm speaking like way out of my league here but even like it's a it's a low bar of like epistemic truth Or something like that. Like if you if you walk around thinking that all I need to do is reach this p value and then it's truth, and and for people, I guess I I think most of the audience will know what we mean by p value. But this idea of I run my statistical test, it every test has an arbitrary cutoff or a semi arbitrary cutoff point where you say if it meets this point, I'll accept it as as true. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a weak epistemological you know conceptualization of what truth is i guess and that's where maybe people who have studied literally epistemology or epistemology sorry or um or this idea of truth or how do we know what we know would uh, are protected from that from that issue
1: yeah yeah and this is definitely a case where i mean there's a lot of really interesting very direct interaction between kind of recent um um I guess it's philosophy. I don't know if, if it's logic or probability exactly, but you know, there's this there's this whole development in in, in 19th century um, a philosophy of, of logic and probability called Bay, you know Bayes theorem associated with this. I can't remember it's George Bayes. I guess is his name, but anyway, there has been this move. I, I, I gather in in some corners of the social sciences towards what's called. Um, um, uh, uh, like a, a, a Bayesian approach to uh, to setting um, the the p value. So basically, you start you start before you you know you don't you don't assume that the the arbitrary .05 cutoff is the one is somehow you know immovably set for all time. You know when you formulate your hypothesis, you ask yourself you know uh, how unlikely is how unlikely is this result like in in the real world. Uh, and and you use that intuition to to set again this is somewhat arbitrary but to, you know you say well you know uh like am i willing to accept one in a hundred odds or like is it, am i actually willing to accept one in 20 odds that that this result is spurious? or am i going to have to say you know uh uh only if it clears the one in a thousand yeah <laughs> exactly to, you know, exactly for statistical significance am i willing to, am i going to be willing to go to the mat and say no this is yeah. actually a valid result yeah as opposed so, to just a fluke? you know uh so
0: yeah. Absolutely, and I, I, I just, I think I'm just, as you've been talking, by the way, I think is the book called The Quick Fix? Yeah, Quick Fix. Yeah, okay, great. Exactly. Dr. Google. Um, yeah. Cool, yeah, I'll check it out. Um, I, I remember, I think it was, um, uh, what's his name? Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, Daniel Kahneman. I, I oh, remember, yeah. he, I remember um, hearing him maybe on like a podcast or something, or maybe it was in one of his books, this idea that he's like, he was almost saying, you know, I want a Nobel Prize for for suggesting that humans are irrational, basically, and this idea of like economics was set all these economic theories were set on um, the assumption that humans make rational decisions and then Kahn- Kahneman comes in and basically says actually they often are irrational it's like in, in the language I think that we're speaking I, I can see that as an example of having a having a broader understanding of human nature actually um, quickly identified a huge glaring issue in a field that was completely oblivious to it without that without that sort of understanding of human nature Can, does that does that kind of resonate with what you
1: yeah yeah very much and this is i mean it, it's um this is another area i mean the whole the rise of um you know the the biases and heuristics literature which kahneman and, and Tversky were the kind of central figures and i mean to my mind yeah it has lots of interesting anticipations in the history of of um of philosophy and theology in terms of i mean um the kind of pick examples at random. Some of my favorites are from the um, the are from Blaise Pascal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's a seventeenth century. Yep. Uh, really became famous as a mathematician, and inventor, brilliant physicist and mathematician. Um, and but he he turned and you know his, in the second half of his short life, uh, sadly sadly short life to um, to writing philosophy and theology. And he's very famous. I didn't know for, that. He's very famous for for uh, a book that was left incomplete at his death called the pensée the thoughts um and it was meant to be a kind of uh i think the title he he had given it for himself is um an apology for for christianity basically really? it's meant to be a kind of work of apologetics basically is that uh,
0: that's um is that is that where like pascal's wager is it from yes, that exactly. work yes, that, that, that it comes from,
1: it? from yeah. exactly yeah yeah right so but um but he has a lot to say in um in that book about the um the the absurdity of our of our pretensions to to impartiality you know in uh, you're gonna and have so to
0: explain that this. one
1: <laughs> well like the, the so i'll just give you some examples i mean he has funny things to say about the um uh you know the way uh we we sort of uh pride ourselves on on the impartiality of our of our justice system he's saying mm-hmm. we the french you know that we we have we invest so much time and energy in in, in this system of courts and trials you know and do I mean, they they wouldn't have called it due process at that point, but due process, essentially. But but he says, um, you know, uh, the reality is that, um, like, if the defendant happens to like be horribly disfigured, you know, or if the defendant is on the other hand, you know, tall and handsome, or if the judge like has a backache that day or whatever, you know, the, like we know that those things can completely change the outcome of of the case. And this is, I mean, this is a this is a um, there are, there are. I don't think this is one of Kahneman studies, but there are um, real-world studies. It's a very interesting paper I, I read a number of years ago about um, rates of. Um, it was, it was looking at um, the the rates at which an Israeli a, a tribunal of um, or whatever panel of Israeli judges commuted or granted parole. It was an Israeli parole board. Um, the the rates at which they granted parole, and it turned out, you know, someone looked at this one one, one board over time. Uh, they were much more likely to uh, to grant to grant parole right after lunch. The mm-hmm. lowest lowest rates of 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 uh, granting parole right before lunch. Highest rates right after lunch. You know, uh, so sucks to be the person whose case comes <laughs> up. Yeah, lunch, yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, this is a you know Pascal. He's very fam- one of the, one of the most famous lines from the Pensée is um, uh, uh, the the heart has its reasons, which reason knows not um oh. and it's something very much like i mean you can i think align it pretty cleanly with with what kahneman meant by you know sort of system one and system two <laughs> you know that there's a there's a, there's an aspect of our of our um of our being i guess you might say you know or of our, our cognitive and and effective life which is um um largely unconscious you know mm-hmm. it's just sort of intuitive it's the it, it operates from the heart you know so to speak um, but it does form judgments um and it has a it has a, a, a way of orienting, orienting us to the world in terms of decision-making and goals and that sort of thing. Um, and it just turns out most of the time reason just has no access to that, you know? Which is, I mean, pretty much exactly what Kahneman <laughs> meant, I think. I don't know that Kahneman had ever read Pascal, but I think he would have liked him if he, if he had, you know? <laughs> um, so, it was, I mean, it's a nice example. You might say, well, you know, Pascal had intuitions, but Kahneman had data or whatever. And that's fair enough to a certain extent, I think. But what it does illustrate is that... Um, Pascal, you know, he um, like like um, this is not unusual really in the history of philosophy and theology. He was interested in cases as well. I mean, he wasn't assembling he wasn't assembling really rigorous, rigorously quantitative
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: uh, empirical cases for for the theses that he was advancing in the way that you know we're now we're now able to do you know with them um, big data sets and RCTs and and statistics and that that sort of thing. But but he is still interested. In the fit, you know, between theory and and evidence, gotcha. uh, so he tries yeah. to marshal tries to marshal evidence to say, you know, um, here's a here's a common situation you'll recognize this, you You're the reader. You know, as soon as you mm-hmm. see this, you'll recognize, yeah, that's something that I experience, you know, that so yeah. that if, you know, and I think that 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 kind of argument, to my mind, remains very powerful. You know, that I mean, I guess I would say like I'm a I'm I'm a big fan of presumptive arguments up to a point. You know, that like if it if it um, if it's the sort of thing that like everybody's grandmother would have known was true 70 years ago, like the burden of proof is on you if you don't think that's true, basically. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <Interesting. laughs> you know? Not that, not that that's in plenty of cases, you know, the, those, that burden can be met, you know? Yeah. But, gotcha. Um, these things, common sense becomes common sense for a reason in general, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, we have a kind of like epistemic obligation to suspend judgment about like you know about gravity <laughs> Sure, <laughs> someone's worked, worked out the equations for us is i mean anyway yeah I, I find i find that psychologically it's not very plausible like no one lives like that no psychologist lives like that you know um uh and uh um, yeah anyway for good yeah. reasons
0: I, yeah you know. no I'm, I'm with you and so i'm hoping that the i i see this conversation as as having stayed very closely to the theme of well-being and flourishing I, i'm not sure whether the the audience will will have seen that but i i and and sorry just one point of clarification i just wanted to clarify for people that are listening pascal's wager i guess just to basically um characterize that the idea that it's it's a safer bet to believe and act as if god existed rather than to not right is that the just a very
1: yeah i mean very basically yeah that's the yeah. um other things being equal i mean it is it does get much more complicated than that interestingly i mean it might be worth it this is i mean just a, at the level of psychology too this is a very interesting case of of um Pascal as a very subtle psychologist. Oh so yeah, let's go. After he introduces this this idea, you know that uh, if you have to choose between bl- living as though God exists and living as though He doesn't, you know, and he's imagining here, you know, basically you're risking uh, um, heaven or hell, basically. You know, eternity in hell, eternity in heaven, right? You know, so um, safe bet for sure. Better bet is live as though God God exists. You know, that's the idea. But the interesting thing is, immediately after he lays out that argument his sort of interlocutor in the, in the Pensee, um, uh, uh, retorts and says, well, okay, that's a, that's very interesting, Pascal. Uh, maybe that's true, but here's the problem. I don't believe in God, you know, yeah. like I, yeah. you know, it's, it's like telling someone, you know, to, to believe that there's a gorilla standing next to you or something, something like that. I mean, it's a nice idea, but psychologically, how do I do that? And Pascal says, well, that's, you know, fair enough. No problem. Here's what you do. Go to church every day. Um, he says, take holy water, you know. He's thinking as a you know very pious Catholic, so like pray the rosary, you know, do all the stuff that you would do if you believe that God exists. And what you'll find, he says, <clears throat> is that, and this is this is a great example of the, the heart's reasons, you know, which reason knows not, you'll find that actually what you're doing as you as you inhabit this way of life, you know, which is the, the sort of Christian way of being in the world, is that um, what used to seem like insuperable, like logical objections to believing that God exists or to believing, you know, that, that Jesus is the savior or whatever, um, will, will over time, like seem less of a, will be less concerning to you. And eventually you'll, you'll find yourself, you know, able eventually actually to, to, to believe. Um, mm. and so the idea is, you know, the idea basically is that we can, we can, it's a kind of hack, you know, that you can, you can operate indirect, you can operate indirectly that people often think, and not to say that some people really just do have in Super Bowl, you know, very sincere and super intellectual objections to this or that religious proposition, or whatever. But, but very often, I think Pascal's what he's rightly picking up on is, you know, what what we think are our real our real reasons for not wanting to do X, Y, or Z are are in fact more like rationalizations, and there's some mm-hmm. you know there's some deeper underlying reluctance. Mm-hmm. And you can operate on on the real reasons, so to speak, you know, by um, by habituation, basically by just. Acting as though this were true, you know. So anyway, it's. I mean, it's um. To my mind, fits, you know, is borne out very well by an awful lot of yeah, uh, uh, empirical empirical uh, work that's been done by the biases and heuristics, you know, sort of sort of crowd. And uh, anyway, yeah, he's a he's an interesting guy, Pascal. Just just one illustration of someone to think yeah. with. Yeah. If you if you want a, a theological interlocutor as a, as a psychologist, um, very right. Right. Thank awesome.
0: Uh, one question I'm going to ask at the end is: is how does someone start when they want to get into theology? But we'll, we'll, we won't go there just yet. What I would love, so th- I mean, the way that I'm sort of the, the way that I've seen this conversation going so far, just just to sort of give some sort of map to the, the discussion so far, has been this idea of when we're talking about well-being, um, psychology. So you know, psychology is not the only field that has some weighing in on, on this topic. Um, there are huge bodies of work from other disciplines that, and, and other ways of knowing, um, that are, that are available to us and that a team like yours, which has those combinations within it, I think is just, is just well, is just well, um, established to be actually pushing this forward faster than others. And I think you've given some really, really good examples of how that might be the case. Um, So yeah, so hopefully I'm I'm guessing for people that are listening, they're completely seeing how this has has been close to well-being and and to to, um, flourishing. What I would really love to just hear from you now is this idea of your theological account of love. So something we can talk about offline is that some measurement development that we've been doing and and part of that has been a a big systematic review of the available measures of well-being. And we took an intentionally broad um, view of what well-being was to include quality of life and resilience and coping. Um, because these literatures kind of partially overlap, and no one can really clearly delineate them in some ways, and and as a result, we did pick up on you know health and personal circumstances and these sorts of things, which which most of pospsych doesn't, as you mentioned. Um, what I thought was incredible was that love almost didn't show up, like <laughs> yeah. basically at all. I think I looked up. So, so what we did was we, we found about 150 measures of well-being, we, uh, you know, of mental health, I guess, or, or positive mental health, whatever. We um, looked at you know, what did they say they were measuring in terms of what were the sub-dimensions of, of their measures. And I just did it like, so then from 155 measures, we found like 400 and something sub-dimensions. Again, terrible use of language, partially overlapping, blah, blah, blah. We, we can talk about that later. I did a control F of love before before this conversation, basically. And I think of those 400, love showed up like four times. Yeah. Once was love of God. And I think there was love of self a few times. And so really, I think it was like one out of 400 measures of these sub-dimensions really talked about this idea of love. There's a, there's obviously a lot of like personal relationships um, and, and sort of like closeness with others, but love does not show up. So I was extremely interested to hear about the work you've been doing on love.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not particularly surprised Yeah, by that, uh, by that finding. I mean, I do think there, as, as you, as you, you mentioned, there's, um, more attention, relatively more attention given to, to various kinds of close personal relationships. You know, yeah. those, those are kind of proxies you might say for love. they are contexts in which you hope that love present obviously not all your mileage may vary <laughs> there with lots of you know not all not all marriages are loving marriages of sure. course we know right uh, That sort of thing but um yeah uh well okay so just i mean i guess as a, a very very broad overview of that of that work i mean this is um work that i'm i'm um individually pretty deeply invested in at the mm-hmm. moment in terms of my own my own research and writing but it's um it's a major priority of the program as a whole at the moment so we have a career um project that's funded by the the john templeton foundation yep. to uh whose pr- primary deliverables will be a set a new set of um of uh psychometric measures self-report measures of um seven different um types of interpersonal love um right running and you know sort of c- covering most of the of the most significant relationships in a person's life so so spousal love you know parent-child love um uh friendship um the other sort of intimate ones. of so those those the only ones. Um, but then the, you know, mo- sort of moving out as well. I mean, this is one of the things we're interested in doing. Is is we've we've just worked up a set of items on love of neighbor. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we've we've been working on love of enemy as well, actually, which is which is um, of particular interest to me. Um, and the love love of God as well, actually. Yeah. Will be yeah. upset, so and yeah, I mean the um, uh, the I mean, this is maybe somewhat you know, maybe somewhat grandiose way of putting it, but I would say the hypothesis is sort of animating a lot of our work on, on love and human flourishing, which is how we're sort of conceiving of the project as a whole is that, um, is that in, in some sense, um, love, loving relationships, including relation, loving relationships, potentially say with God um, are, um, are, if the, the essence might be putting it too strongly, but they're at the heart they're the core in some sense of, of a flourishing life. Um, mm-hmm. um, both in the sense that loving relationships are critical pathways to flourishing in many domains, you know. So for most people, they're they're the deepest source of meaning. Say in a person's life, you know, profound uh, occasions for developing character, you know, a, a virtuous character in yeah, I many. I Speaking as a, as a, I mean, partic- I think particularly very intimate relationships, you know, life, life together with a spouse, life as a parent, you know, mm-hmm. is uh, 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 enormously sort of challenging, you know, uh, in terms of moral formation day to day, at least for very, very bad people like me, I guess. Um, but, um, but then also, you know, that love, love in a way is the, um, is um, among among the intrinsic goods you know that that um, flourishing consists in, love is um, it's the most important of them in the sense that it's you know if you if you're given the option I mean this is somewhat complicated when you think about things like I mean it, in a way is um, um, it's complicated because love is a, it's a dyadic uh, relationship you know it's I mean w- with it, bracketing bracketing self love which is a sort of um, an, an interesting exceptional case I guess um, you know, it orients you to someone else, so it's a way, of, it's a way for me to be in the world, right, mm-hmm. um, so this is an excellent way for me to be, you know, this is a good way for my own life to be configured, to have this disposition of loving another, you know, but it presupposes the sort of investment, you know, in this other person out mm-hmm. there, right, so, so, um, yeah, so anyway, but I think that the, um, um, one of our, one of our uh, affiliates, actually, faculty affiliates in our, in our program is um, Arthur Brooks, who's at the, kennedy school here um, and as a you know very influential popular um he's a he's a labor economist actually but it's become a kind of you know he's moved into this space as well well-being okay. research great I mean he's a you know he's I, th- I just saw the other day actually that he's publishing a book with Oprah apparently so okay <laughs> so his life's about to change you know um but um anyway he says a lot something I, I've heard him say a number of times uh, which which um brings true uh, for me I think I he think it's borne out by by um by quite a lot of evidence as well is that, um, um, uh, like one kind of core rule for all of human life is don't trade anything for love. You know, that this is uh, Mm. and this is something we're constantly tempted to do, I think in many, many aspects of daily life, you know, particularly in professional life, say, you know, to, um, um, to, uh, trade away time with loved ones, say, you know, uh, investment, you know, in our children and our families. Uh, uh, and, uh, anyway, and this is, um, it's so a lot of evidence that long term, uh, this is just a really bad bargain. You know, the, uh, it's a recipe for being for being uh, having a lot of regrets and being very lonely and isolated. You know, in 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 the later part of your life. And anyway, so um, and you know, you often hear people say. I mean, don't have them myself, but you know, people always say. I've heard many put it this way. I've heard many grandparents say. You know, you never regret having having more grandkids you know (laughs) like you can't have too many grandkids you know this is the no one people don't tend to say that about like number of hours worked you know yeah Uh, yeah yeah anyway right i mean i think that this is a again this is a case where the what we're doing is chasing a set of intuitions really which i think are very well grounded uh both in the history of 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 um Let's just say you know the the Western intellectual tradition in a broad sense, but but in many many traditions too, Buddhism has its own versions of this, right? Yeah. The kind of universal vocation, to compassion, you know, um, that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, and so the the hope is to really put that. Well, I mean, the hope is to use the measures eventually to initiate something like a something like an epidemiology of love, um, yeah. so to embed them in 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 um, launch, you know various longitudinal studies, um, mm-hmm. develop. Panel data, where we can actually see, you know, what's what's predicting exactly, um, yeah. the, the development of love as a trait, and, and what are the outcomes? You know, if someone becomes more loving, what does that do in a person's life? On for all kinds of outcomes, you know, from physical health up through psychosocial well-being, spiritual well-being. You know, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it is massively understudied for how important it is. It is, I agree, massively, massively understudied. Uh, I mean, even just you know, we've done we've done quite a lot of literature review and for this measure of development. Uh, project of um, of measures of love. There's tons of them, tons of self-styled measures of love. About eighty percent of them, I think, are romantic love, basically as you might expect. Um, and the other, you know, twenty. I mean, that's that's a, that's a rough measure. I don't remember off the top of my head what the actual figure was, but it was an overwhelming majority. You know, were focused on, yeah. on romantic love. Um, and the others, yeah, you know, tend to be kind of thin. I think that would it's be the kind thing of like
0: says. a symptom of a of a generations of people watching rom-coms basically
1: yeah i mean i guess that's it i don't know it's interesting i mean clearly it's a very important it's a very important relationship you know it's not as though that's you you don't want to don't want to downplay the significance of it necessarily but um but yeah i mean we our, our view and this this in a way is is um quite directly inspired really by by thinking with um the new testament say with the sermon on the mount you know for instance um is that uh the the human vocation to love um in a sense is universal. You know, the yeah. I mean the, the the vocation really is as an aspiration is to love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, I mean the the uh there's a there's a there's a famous um exchange in in the Gospel of Luke where um you know, a teacher of the law asks Jesus, you know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story about a man who was robbed, you know, on the way from from Jericho to Jerusalem and left, you know, strip beaten, you know, and, and left for dead by the side of the road. And, and a priest comes by and ignores him and, and a, a Levite comes by and ignores him. And then, you know, the, the loathsome Samaritan comes by and stops and mm. helps him and washes his wounds and takes care of him, you know? And, um, Jesus says, which one of these was the neighbor? And obviously it's the Samaritan, the good Samaritan is where we get this expression from, you know? Um, and, uh, so that's, you know, the paradigm of neighbor love is, is really love for, I mean, the interesting thing is in that relationship, that's really, um, the, the samaritan helping this jewish man samaritans and jews um didn't get along in this period. yeah that's you know? the
0: context that's that's never understood about that story yeah, right,
1: yeah, right yeah. which is often left out right the samaritans i mean this and this is clear even in other parts of the new testament jesus has a conversation at one point in the gospel of john with a samaritan woman and his disciples are scandalized uh because samaritans don't jews don't have anything to do with with samaritans you know editorially of mm. uh, the, mm. the 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 narrator of the gospel says um so yeah, a lot of bad blood. It's kind of a complicated story about how this comes about, but but yeah. So I mean, this is this is a case in a way. It's it's a case of neighbor love, but it's also in a way an instance both of stranger and of enemy love. You know, yes. this is someone he would have recognized. Samaritan would have recognized this person as you know um, someone who's on the wrong team, so to speak. You know, and and so that and and, and I mean, to my mind, that's that's an ex- an extraordinarily um, difficult trait psychologically. You know, to get inside, like what is it like to what is it like to actively seek the good of someone you are sure, or at least pretty sure, you know, hates you or doesn't, you know, or would if they knew you, you know, so mm-hmm. to speak, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you, you know, um, and, uh, um, and this is, I mean, it's, it's become, particularly in an American context where, you know, the level of ill will among various segments of the population in terms of partisan politics, or yeah. you know, increasingly racial divides, it's, it's almost hard, impossible to exaggerate. I was know, just thinking, like, that. yeah, <laughs>
0: does the um, would, <laughs> you know, would, does the MAGA person help the hurt antifa person? Right, exactly. you know, because On the street, actually, like yeah. that's almost that's almost never happening. You would imagine, like, I mean, by listening to the media, I'm sure it's not it necessarily. Is, is.
1: Yeah, and it's. I mean, I do think that there is a. I mean the yeah, unfortunately, the, the the very strong sort of neg- negativity bias, you know, in the uh, in the media does doesn't help. Since uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, no one no one is uh, boosting the ratings by running heartwarming stories about people, you know, coming together across <laughs> yeah. partisan divides, enemy or, love. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah, but so but I do think there. I mean, there's there there honestly is some debate I think empirically about the extent to which. You know, negative polarization is increasing in, mm-hmm. in America, and, and the extent to which partisan animosity is increasing—that sort of thing. But, but um, I mean, to my mind, the I mean, evidence is pretty clear that it, it has increased. At least, it has increased significantly. You know, I mean, maybe the extent of the increase has been has, has been has been oversold in, in some settings. But um, in in recent decades, and and um, and there's some you know to some extent that that is a, a function, in a way, of um, of uh, the. The loss of a common, common vision, moral grammar, you might say. You know, that 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 used to more or less unite uh, mm-hmm. left and right. And the mm-hmm. left and right genuinely have moved a lot farther apart. I think both both uh, each in their own direction. You know, in the last 30 years or so, and, and that does actually make it much harder than it used to be to find common ground. You know, we're not the the racking neuralgic issues today are are like it's not you know marginal tax rates (laughs) you know but like what we're going to do about social security or whatever in the way that it was 30 years ago yeah existentially much more pressing sort of questions have become a lot more salient and so yeah it's understandable that people are 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 angrier than they than they used to be but it's also just not a good situation for anybody you know no Um, no
0: so. so when it when i'm just wondering maybe this is skipping ahead this is an unfair question in a way but i'll i'll ask it anyway when it comes to this idea of, you know, love of, let's say love of enemy, right? So that's something obviously we're saying that we're, we're thinking is, is disappearing. Um, and there's no institution that's really fighting for it, right? Um, in, in a way, in a modern, in a, in a modern sense, like in no secular institution, let's say, that's, that's, that's yeah. arguing for this thing or, or none that I'm aware of. I'm wondering, like, do, do you envision that you almost have Pascal's problem um, that we, you know, that's kind of fitting that you're going to let's just say you, you show up and you've got your measures and they're showing how important you know like in, a, in this science, scientism kind of argument like we, we have our own arguments for why we think love of neighbor is important but now you have some empirical data to say actually here's why it's so relevant what is then the impetus for people to start adopting it do you think you know it, it, without the idea yeah. you know, in, in a secular sense
1: yeah yeah yeah, I mean, that's a fair question, I guess. I mean, it's, you know, um, this is a different sort of problem in a way in in the States than it is in a lot of the developed world, but, I mean, in kind okay. of Europe, say, in, in the sense that America still today remains a much more religious place, like overtly religious place than... Um, than, than most of Europe, for instance. I think this is true of Australia as well, although I know less about about religious participation there. Um, But, um, you know, and and religious participation in a way is not even the best measure, I guess. I mean, the thing that I find really striking is it's about, I think it's still today, about 50% of the American population um, professes uh, belief, not just in God, but in some, professes, you know, identifies with some, specific religious tradition but doesn't participate Mm -hmm. regularly Mm -hmm. Like doesn't go to church doesn't go to synagogue you know um and so i mean to my mind the the pitch and this is a you know you can make this in lots of different ways but um one one part of the pitch for you know the this sort of vision doesn't i don't think it necessarily has to be a a a fully christian vision you know necessarily of any loves. i mean in in a way this is a this is a teaching which you can you can I'm very happy for anybody to make of it what they will, you know. I mean, I think, and this is something I do, I do wish, just as a sidebar, I mean, I wish that there were, just in the way that psychologists increasingly, you know, in the last 30 years or so, have um, been have been sort of jumping feet first into into classic Buddhist texts, you know, and just, yeah. like, read the Dhammapada, and let's just see what we can make of it, you know. And, and without any presumption that you have to, like, Ipso you facto, if you're going to take any of it, you have to believe in reincarnation, you know, or like accept that the Dalai Lama has been reincarnated 14 times or, you know, um, I wish that I wish that more social scientists were doing that same kind of thing with the New Testament, say, like, just pick it up, just see, you know, <laughs> read the Sermon on the Mount and see what stands out to you as something that you might take seriously as a as a way of life, you know, um, and then the kind of merging of horizons question, like how you actually translate, you know, what Jesus says about loving your enemy, you know, which is very much a th- it, these are these are very much theological claims, you know. That I mean, for the New Testament, the paradigm of enemy love is, for I mean, Saint Paul makes this very clear actually in, in his letter to the Romans that um, um, we're to love we're to love our enemies because when when we were God's enemies, Jesus loved us, you know. <laughs> when we were that was the, that's the paradigm that Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus died for people. He went to the cross, you know, asking God to forgive forgive the people who were killing him, you know. Uh, right, so um so that's a um but just just because christians have a particularly sort of rich way of motivating those views doesn't mean that others aren't possible right and you could maybe say like here's a vision of how how you could live you know um for me it's i mean obviously i'm 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 totally fine with it if someone if someone tries on that way that form of life you know the the like let me try to like genuinely love uh everyone around me you know Mm -hmm. as as those say that doesn't even have to doesn't have to be because god loves them but love them as if you know they were they were creatures made in god's image you know whom whom god loved into being just the way they loved me you know and if it turns out that as a result of sort of inhabiting that way of life someone finds christianity more plausible than they did before like that's great from my standpoint but but if not like uh it's still a good way of living as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think there are, there are, um, this is, a um, not good necessarily in the sense that it will make you, you know, like wealthier or longer lived or something like that. Um, but it's a, a, a intrinsically a, a really, this is a really good thing to do, you know, to try mm. to live this way. Um, mm. so yeah. Um, yeah, my, my pitch would be like, try to approach this in a like a metaphysically low-flying way, like don't get stressed out about whether you have to believe that God exists if you, you know, want to take the idea of enemy love or neighbor love seriously. Just take it, take it seriously as a, as a potential way of life, as like a live option, you know, as something you might try for yourself. And just the way people take, you know, Buddhist ideas about compassion, uh, you know, or, or um, one-pointed mindfulness or whatever seriously without like strong commitments to, because there's a whole, sort of Baroque Buddhist metaphysics too that's built up, you know, in various traditions around all of this stuff as well, right? That, you know, uh, it is kind of interesting. That it, I mean, I don't... It's interesting to work out. I don't have a good theory about why this, it's gone this way, but, you know, there's a bit of a double standard, I think, in the way that people in the sciences relate to Eastern spiritual traditions. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, to some extent, I, I get it. Buddhists are... are um, at least some traditions in, within Buddhism are less committed to um like they're not they tend not to be theists in the way that christians are theists you know so it's a little easier to secularize in that sense like maybe you don't believe in all of the demons and stuff lying around but like or maybe you don't believe in reincarnation but but they already believe maybe in less stuff than christians do so it's easier in that in that sense but but in in both cases you know there's um there is a lot of translation that has to be done even from buddhism you know in terms of getting turning these buddhist commitments into something that you know your average psychologist today is willing to take seriously so yeah
0: yeah i, I, I think I really it's really interesting with, yeah. yeah no <clears throat> i'm with you on that i think it's really interesting that the idea that i think the like at least for positive psychology let's say the or even taking a step back the well, the mindfulness space has a very clear um um like it clearly references the buddhist tradition right and so like it's yep. it's a well, very well understood that this is basically then the you know um empirical investigation of this tradition but i think something that you just remind me and something that I, one of your articles that i was reading this idea that you know the the west at least is so you know christian virtue and uh and uh and um values is so pervasive in western culture that we almost don't even recognize the novelty of it you know so i wonder whether that's a part of it too it's like you know in a way if you if you're looking then to the east it's like oh there's a source of this new wisdom not Mm -hmm. recognizing the wisdom that you know is around us from from a from a different tradition it's kind of like the fish in water sort of thing
1: yeah yeah exactly that's yeah that's that's a good way of putting it um yeah i do think that there's um i mean yeah it's really easy especially secular folks today, I mean, it's easy for Christians to do this as well, but to overlook the extent to which, um, you know, I mean, something like a commitment to human rights is like basically a piece of, that's a piece of secularized Christian theology, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, like it doesn't really emerge anywhere else. It emerges, when it emerges, it emerges for explicitly Christian reasons, you know? And then eventually people start uh, uh, trying to detach it in various ways from that, that underlying, um, those underlying commitments. Um, and there's been, I mean, there's been, you know, there's been good, good recent work done on this in a lot of, uh, from, from, you know, by historians or so, secular it's historians like, of social um, scientists.
0: D- think of Dominion?
1: Yeah, Tom Holland's a f- uh, famous example of this. I was actually thinking, I mean, most immediately, I like, I, like, I like Holland's work. He's very interesting, but I do think, I mean, if you're, if you're, if I were trying to make the appeal to um, social scientists, I think jo- Joseph Henrik's work is even better in a way because it's so, it's so well-grounded empirically. Um,
0: Joseph but, uh, Henrik?
1: Yeah, Henrik is, um, he's the guy who coined the acronym weird, weird people. Oh, okay. Uh, um, he, that's, that's his thing. So he wrote a book, uh, published a book, and he's actually here at Harvard. He's in the Human Evolutionary Biology Department um, here at, at Harvard. Um, and he published a book in 2020 called The Weirdest People in the World. Um, and the thesis of the book, basically, is it's a kind of origin story about where weirdness, you know, comes from. Um, as a as a cultural form and the thesis basically is that the the church brought it into being um, especially church church uh, norms around marriage and family um, had um, uh, this sort of profound transformative effect over the course of centuries and in, in restructuring society and then changing our psychology and and it's worked out in this really in this really clever you know I mean very disciplined empirical way I mean the, he you know it's like every hundred years extra hundred years of exposure to uh the church's marriage and family plan as he calls it you know is like associated with i can't remember what the percentages but some percentage rise in blood donations really? you know and yeah it's very interesting. interesting it's really really well done yeah so so i think that that will look that up you know that's a um that's a case and he's you know totally open in the book about he says at one point that like the idea of immaterial souls makes as much about as much sense he says as the idea of someone who only exists on tuesday and thursday you know which is not to say not not very much sense at all in his view. So he's not a not a religious guy, you know, in any in any meaningful sense. Um, but um, but take seriously, you know, the the um, the extent to which you know the the West, so to speak. I mean, this this for him means you know Western legal norms, Western. I mean, weird, he has a whole chapter in weird science, <laughs> which is, yeah, okay. case, you know, <laughs> this is a, basically a product of this distinctively Christian culture, you know, yeah, the, I mean, yeah. make of that what you will, maybe it can be detached, you know, you pick the fruit, you know, from the tree and you walk away and don't worry about where it came from. But, um, but yeah, I do think it is worth, it's always worth directing people's attention to the fact that, you know, a lot of what they believe is basically Christianity without the God talk and stuff. Yeah, know. yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. I, I,
0: absolutely. And I think the more you learn, it's so it, like if you have if your like understanding of theology is like basically like from the Simpsons or something or just stuff you've sort of w- inherited from sort of pop culture and whatever. You don't see it, but the more you look into it, you go, oh, okay. Now I'm now I'm yeah, understanding the point. source. Yeah, and we just just, sort of just to clarify. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but just quickly, weird is the acronym. Just so we're not it's clear that we're not talking about like weird like weirdo sort of thing weird mm-hmm. being western educated industrialized rich and democratic people so sorry just to yes. but please right. Right. please go on what we're gonna say
1: oh um yeah i mean it's really instructive i think and this is this is what holland is quite good for is you know the um to realize that, like in in ancient rome you know it was like totally normal for people just to be able like if a if a father didn't want to keep his daughter, he could just kill her, you know, and that was like totally within bounds culturally <laughs> and legally, you know, and that uh, I mean, you know, and you could go on down the list. I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the way that, that, I mean, so put it this way, there's a very famous thesis, I mean, uh, associated with, with Friedrich Nietzsche, especially, although there are others before him who made it as well, that, um, that he, Nietzsche said that Christianity was a, a slave revolt in morality within the ancient world, you know, and, and that in the sense that it was a kind of, assertion on the part of people who were weak and dispossessed mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and at the in the dregs of society you know in the ancient world it's a, it that it was a kind of revolt on their part um an, an effort to to turn the table so to speak morally so that things that had been devalued you know humility for instance which is not a virtue for aristotle um um impartial kindness you know again not yeah. a virtue for aristotle yeah. uh, suddenly are the are the pinnacle of virtue you know And, uh, and Nietzsche, who's an atheist and a kind of sneering would be aristocrat, you know, um, um, and, and, and inadvertently, I mean, you can't blame this on him exactly, but inadvertently a kind of, you know, theorist for the Nazis too, right? So anyway, but Nietzsche, you know, um, he, he tells the story as a tragedy, you know, that the all of the the virile, you, you know, sort of aristocratic virtues of the ancient world had been submerged by this this pathetic slave revolt, you know, and we had to get back, so to speak, to that. But so I would say, I mean, I think this is one of the virtues of Holland's book, as it documents pretty clearly that. So Nietzsche's right about this. I mean, it's absolutely true. He's totally wrong about the significance of it. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it you, it's a great thing actually yeah. that the slave revolt happened. I mean, for one thing, you know, it, it's um, it's, yeah, it is worth pointing out that it took it took took us too long to do it, but um. Like every abolitionist movement in the history of the world, pretty much has been a, has been Christian in inspiration, at least indirectly. You know, and the first abolitionists were like very sincere, passionate Christians. Quakers, you know, were the ones who got on, on board first, and so um, so it's literally a slave revolt in in, mm. in in the end. But you know, so I, I think that, that that's um it's very easy to overlook. We're so used to this this way of being. You know, the idea that everyone has equal dignity, and you know. Um, poor person's life is worth just as much as a rich. in principle, obviously. In practice we have a long way to go, but um in terms of moral norms, sure. all of those are so intuitive to us that it's really hard to think back to a world in which no one thought that, you know, and it was just taken for granted that the, you know, powerful would dominate the weak, you know, and that was what society existed for was to, you know, advance the the uh the excellence of, you know, the best and the brightest lineages, you know, and that's um so anyway yeah i mean i think that's a um, christianity it's not the only factor but it's certainly i would say the dominant factor in explaining why we don't think that way Mm. anymore you know
0: are there any um just while we're on this topic i know it's probably a a side note but oh actually no it's not but uh, is there any um like what would be the most reputable um disagreement to that idea
1: oh yeah um
0: like if there's just if there's a book that you could reference or an author or
1: right yeah yeah sure i mean um well you know uh yeah i'm trying to think off the top of my head i mean who's the like the most serious version of the case sort of uh i mean and you're talking here about the the case against christianity's sort of historic cultural influence
0: that's right yeah for the i guess for the betterment of you know yeah, yeah. yeah
1: well, I mean, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of other ways of telling that story about the emergence, say, of modern, the modern culture of, of rights talk, say, democratic institutions, you know, the, the things that I'm referencing here as, as, you know, in a way, sort of products, you know, mm-hmm, bastard children, mm-hmm. at least they have the church, if not, if not like, uh, 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 Trueborn heirs. Um, yeah, so there are... Um, I mean, I've just the first person who comes to mind, I mean, he's not necessarily the best even, but I mean, a very popular version of, of a, a very different story is on the historian Jonathan Israel, who's a historian of, of um, uh, early modern European thought, especially political thought. Um, okay. And a great champion of what he calls the radical enlightenment, um, which basically means yeah. for him, Benedict Spinoza, um, who um, is often regarded as an atheist. I think that's wrong, actually. It's not... Spinoza believed he believed only in God, like he's a pantheist, everything is God. <laughs> I mean, okay. The world, better way of <laughs> yeah, putting it. sure. But anyway, yeah, so Spinoza, he was a very radical figure, he's Jewish, uh, a philosopher, excommunicated by his, kicked out of his synagogue in in, um, um, in Amsterdam, and, and was, you know, his writings were, sp- sp- very, you know, suppressed at various parts, various parts of his life, you know, and, and, uh, and he he was quite a radical figure, but yeah, so there's, there's a, another, another version of the story, um, which has, you know, elements of truth in it, uh, which says that, you know, really the stuff that we care most about comes from these kind of deviant, you know, marginal figures like Spinoza, um, gets picked up, you know, by by later philosophers, um, Rousseau, say, who then, you know, influenced the French Revolution, yeah. Yeah, say, and yeah, most yeah. of that is all secular. That's the idea. Um, I mean, I think that's – and, you know, I shouldn't – I do think it, it, it's important for me – I maybe this is a helpful thing to say um, – like I mentioned before that the first abolitionists, you know, in the in the West were Quakers, right? I mean Quakers were also persecuted <laughs> you know, by other Christians for a lot of their history, right? And they were regarded as deviants and as heretics, you know, and um, so it's not it's not I don't you know, I think it's it's Christians often uh, are over hasty in trying to take credit, like yeah. in an institutional sense for yeah. having yeah. I mean the, the the biggest institution Christian institutions were often like the last people to come around <laughs> to some of these developments, you know? sure, so, sure, That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the developments, in terms of their their lineage, their genesis, were not in fact the products, in a very important way, of this very long germination. Of, um, sure. And I think it's honestly, it's just on the topic of Spinoza, for instance. I mean, it's it's easy to to underestimate, and I, I think I think Israel does underestimate the extent to which he's actually influenced uh, in his in his own way by by a very long history of. Um, of medieval jewish and and christian philosophy and theology I mean, he's reading he doesn't cite them but he's reading aquinas for instance and knows a yeah. lot of aquinas and interesting so anyway yeah i mean i think the um um to some extent you know i think all serious parties to the debate end up you know recognizing that there's a lot of continuity and discontinuity say in this history and you know it's questions where you place the accent and mm. i mean so um but yeah i mean to my mind um no one should want, I mean, certainly no Christian should want to sort of, like, whitewash terrible things that the church is participated. in. No, I was going to, to say that. There's obviously
0: not a clean bill of health on that side either. Yeah, that's well, right. I
1: mean, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, and I mean, certainly we have, um, yes, if uh, uh, I'm mean, thinking again about Spinoza, I mean, the history of the, the, the weight of the, the church's um, sort of traditional anti-Semitism, you know, weighs very, very heavily, I think, particularly, obviously, after the, after the Holocaust, you know, is something that... Um, you know the church incubated at least in a in a pretty virulent way for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no, not a clean bill of health by any means. Yeah, in that regard, but um, but nothing, nothing. You know, in this veil of tears, is is, is um, all bad or all good, right? Everything is everything is 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 mixed in various ways. So.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. Like this has been. Uh, I don't know whether this has been useful for anyone that's interested in researching happiness. I hope that it has been. I, I can absolutely see how that's the case. So I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank Likewise, you. I'm man. conscious well, I'm of your time. I just have one. I have an unfair question and then a pretty fair question. My yeah. unfair question is, is just of my own curiosity. You've mentioned the Sermon on the Mount a few times mm-hmm. and I understand that there's some link between like so the Beatitudes. We don't have to go into this. People can look that up but the beatitudes and happiness like i think there's maybe like a greek translation where it almost it almost represents happiness in some way yeah is there yes. some is there is there a quick is there no let's put it this way can you point me in the direction of somewhere i can find more information on that cuz mm-hmm. i'm not going to ask you to explain it
1: yeah uh yes uh get a very good concise account of it in a book called the sermon on the mount and human flourishing by oh, perfect um, by a New Testament scholar named Jonathan Pennington. Um, He will have more information than you require about that. But yes, absolutely. The the word in question translated as blessed is makarios. It's a word that Aristotle uses, actually, in the Nick Ethics to describe the supremely happy. It's usually translated in Aristotle, supremely blessed. Um, It's even better than than eudaimonia. You know, it's the best kind of happiness. Um, So yeah, very direct links. Yeah, uh, certainly. Um,
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, that is... That's the perfect, just judging by the title, that's the next book I'm going to read. (laughs) Yeah, good. good. Um, And so then my last question is really for people that are sort of budding, have a budding interest in this field, you know, I feel the same way about, you know, obviously philosophy can feel Uh unaccessible. What would you recommend in terms of a a budding interest in theology?
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I do think in general, if you're just interested in trying to get a sense of, what Christians are on about. I think the New Testament is a pretty good place to start. I mean, the Gospel of John, if you haven't read it, you know, is is uh, is a pretty accessible text and has lots of interesting, lots of interesting stuff in it. Put it that way. Um, uh, in terms of the history of Christian thought, you know, um, yeah, it's hard to know exactly how to. I mean, there's there are trade-offs, obviously, between accessibility and depth. You know, mm-hmm. uh, right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like to some extent, the more accessible it is, you know, the less. The less it will represent, you know, kind of the, the best that's been thought and said in this field, right? So, which is to some extent, which is okay, I think. I mean, I don't know. I'm this is biographical for me, I suppose, more than anything. But I do have a deep affection for the the 20th century uh, sort of Christian apologist, I guess you'd call him. Um, not quite a theologian, but a Christian Chesterton. Christian author. Uh, Chesterton's awesome. I was thinking of C.S. Oh, Lewis. Okay. Oh, is...
0: Okay. Even better. Yeah.
1: Oh, I quite I quite I quite like. I mean, I do think you could do worse. It's not a perfect book. In, in any sense, but you could do worse than start with his book, Mere Christianity, if you wanted yeah. a kind of high-level overview, again, of what Christians are on about. Um, so he's he was he was an Anglican, but had a pretty ecumenical sensibility in the sense of, you know, he, he wrote, he, he was, it's called Mere Christianity because he was trying to write something that would have been acceptable to basically any Christians of any stripe, you know, kind of common ground, you know, and so, um, yeah, and that's a good way in. I mean, you could work your way back to... You know Augustine's fantastic to read, but the Confessions are a little forbidding. And you know, I found you know people I've suggested that to people as a place to start, and they come back and they're like I can't make anything of that. <laughs> yeah, and,
0: yeah. So uh, yeah, let's I mean, see. So probably
1: yeah, read the Gospel John or read C.S. Lewis, and then see what you think. You know, um, after that, if you want to go deeper, um,
0: yeah. you'll you find your way after that, I guess.
1: Yeah, he. I mean, Lewis. He references lots of books that you could use to orient yourself after that, if you wanted. But um, yeah.
0: Um, all right, perfect. Well, thank you so much again. This has been a, an, uh, just a delight, to be honest. It's been really enthralling just yeah. to hear hear this work and, and to know that it's happening in the world and, and at Harvard of all places. Of all um, places. So, dude. yeah, no, really, um, really appreciate your time and, and thank you again.
1: All right, well, uh, thanks for the invitation, Matt. Yeah, and best of luck. Uh, uh, hope thank to, you. Hope that we'll connect again at some point.
0: Absolutely. Cheers. Okay okay a huge thank you to dr Brendan case for joining us this week um, I want I want to know what you're thinking like let me know please hit me up on uh, on Twitter or on, or on LinkedIn in the comments whatever let me know because um, yeah I want to do more of this and I want to hear what other people think so thank you again to Brendan enjoy don't forget to share this with someone who might be interested thank you